if you really want to ask the question, why do some people heal and some people not heal? A lot of the answers lies in these archetypes, where these are the most common roadblocks as to why people don't heal, which is why understanding them is so important for the healing process, because you can see where you are actually getting certain needs met and holding on to some sort of pain or illness. Welcome to the PATH Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. This is a Soul Fire production. Today on the show, we've got Greg Schmaus on. Now, Greg is a holistic health practitioner, Czech practitioner, shamanic energy healer, and massage therapist who utilizes a fully integrated approach to supporting people in their physical and mental health. Now, in today's podcast, Greg and I go deep in the topic of archetypes. This is something that I've been so curious and interested as of late learning more and more about. And I've worked personally with Greg on this one-on-one. And in today's podcast, not only does he share in depth what is an archetype, how do these archetypes play out in our lives so that we can better know ourselves, Also, we've selected eight archetypes that Greg goes deep into, four of which are what are considered the survival archetypes. So the prostitute, the saboteur, the victim, and the child. And how can we utilize information on both the light side and the shadow side of all of these archetypes to support us in our mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual evolution? Get ready. This was such a great podcast. Let's get right into it with my man, Greg Schmaus. At a bare bones basic level, before we we dive in and we've got some some really cool things to to go into today, what is an archetype? And if you can just share, like, why has this been such a pivotal part of the work that you're doing now? Well, an archetype is really represents a role or a pattern that we take on and play out in relationship. So we all need vehicles for self-expression. And if you kind of think about us all as, you know, an expression of the divine, the divine takes on these different personas in relationship as a way of it coming to know itself. So the Tarot, for example, like Paul taught that Tarot workshop, which was amazing. Those are archetypes, you know, like Mm -hmm. he was explaining, those are ways that the divine comes into relationship with itself, creates that illusion of separation. And each aspect of itself plays a certain role. So I kind of like that, that analogy that Alan Watts talks about, like using the word personality, meaning persona, which persona represents the mask that you wear, right? So if you went to like a play, like back, you know, hundreds of years ago, they would give you a list of personas, which were the masks that the actors and the actresses were wearing. Right. Mm. So the masks that we wear are kind of like the archetypes that we play out in relationships so we can kind of come to know ourselves. So for example, we have obviously the four survival archetypes, which we'll get into, but we have infinite archetypes. Like the athlete is an archetype that many individuals like yourself and myself, we use as a vehicle of self-expression, 
as a vehicle of coming to know ourselves and other people coming to know us. You know, someone else might take on the role of the healer or the artist or the scribe or the podcaster right now, you could say, is an archetype. It's a role that you're playing to create relationship, and it's a vehicle that you're using for self-expression as a means of coming to know yourself, right? So that's really at a foundational level what archetypes are, and all archetypes kind of like come into relationship with one another. And the reason it's so valuable to explore this kind of work is specifically in relationships, for example. If you can explore relationships through the lens of archetypes, it's much easier to look at the things that otherwise are hard to look at. Because when you see things archetypally, you don't see things as personally. Can you give an example of that? So I have a really strong hermit archetype. Right? We were talking earlier about the hermit. And now that I live with my partner and her children in like a full household, my hermit archetype really needs a lot of like time alone and space for myself, introspection, quiet time. So very often, you know, the family might be doing something together and I might kind of like wander off into my own space and kind of maybe sit in meditation for a period of time. Now, in the past, it was very easy for people I was in relationship with to take that personally as like, oh, Greg doesn't want to hang out with us, mm-hmm. or Greg doesn't want to spend time with us. But my partner knows that I have a strong hermit archetype. And she also knows that, which we'll get into on my archetype wheel, I have it in my fourth house, which is home and family life. Mm-hmm. So she knows that Greg has a hermit at home which means he needs a lot of alone time and space for himself in order for him to be able to show up fully in relationships. So when she notices like, oh, Greg's not here right now, he's off in a closet meditating, like she doesn't take that personally as having anything to do with her because she knows that's my archetypal profile and something that I have to do to get that need met So then I'm able to show up fully in relationships. So that's just a simple example of how knowing someone's archetypes and knowing your own archetypes can save you a lot of stress, a lot of unnecessary conflict. And that was the, I think it was the second agreement in the four agreements of take nothing personally. Mm. Right. So the reason the second agreement is take nothing personally. And the, the reason because nothing personal is it's always archetypal the reason nothing's personal is because it's archetypal wow i'd never heard it described like that yeah so that's just a simple example as to how we can take things personally or we can understand the archetypal nature of an individual and realize that that's just someone getting their needs met and taking care of what they need to take care of so then they can show up fully um in relationship and also that relationships come together through archetypes. For example, a victim is always looking for a rescuer and a rescuer is always looking for a victim, right? So those two archetypes are coming together archetypally. There's a contract there and each archetype is meeting the need of the other. 
Does every archetype have a complementary one, every single one? Not really, but in relationships, you're always going to find it. You know, there's the student and the teacher relationship. That's an archetypal relationship. The archetype of the teacher, the archetype of the student. There's, you know, the knight and the damsel. The knight is the one that rides in on the high horse and sweeps the damsel off her feet and like saves the day. And the damsel is looking for the knight in shining armor to sweep her off of her feet. You know, so there's, that's why, you know, Caroline Miss talks about all archetypes are contracts. These are contracts that you either signed consciously or unconsciously. And a lot of our relationships are really those contracts coming together as a way of, you know, working out certain wounds, certain traumas, certain maybe like karmic imprints, but really just opportunities for us to learn, heal and grow and empower ourselves. Wow. One big curious question that I have is, you know, there's been different uh, I don't know if the right word is like classifications or organizations of these archetypes. So I took Paul's uh, five symbol archetype workshop. He did his tarot thing. Carolyn Mrs. work is a big teacher for you. And I know you, if I don't recall correctly, like Yoon was was one of the, the foremost people in this archetype. But these things have been around forever since the dawn of time. These archetypes have, have been there. So what was it about maybe Carolyn Miss's work that attracted you and felt you felt like it was very helpful for your work and helping navigate your life? And how does it maybe differ from some of these other systems out there? Yeah, so I was introduced to Caroline Miss's work through Paul. So when I was doing coaching work with Paul, he introduced to me the big eight archetypes, which includes the four survival archetypes. All right. So the the four survival archetypes being the child, the victim, the saboteur, and the prostitute, right? So those are our four core survival archetypes that everybody has, which we'll get into those. Um, so that was my introduction into those archetypes. And then when I met my partner, Annalisa, she had been studying with Caroline Miss for almost 10 years. And she introduced me about four years ago to the archetype wheel. So she said, hey, Greg, this is really cool. Let me take you through the process of casting your wheel. I know you've done work with the survival archetype, so you'll really you know, enjoy this process. So she actually cast my wheel the first night that she and I got together, which he jokes, she was saying, I just wanted to see what I was getting myself into, and which is really hilarious. Um, so I cast my wheel with her and then I started doing a lot of my own inner explorations on my own wheel. And she supported me with some of that because she had been doing this work for a while. And there was something about the 12 archetypes in the 12 houses that really like clicked inside of me. Like there was something inside of me that it just, I really got it and I was really interested in it and it made sense to me. So after a while, I ended up, I decided to do her professional training and go through her system as like an archetypal consultant, just really going deeper into the wheel, the houses, and all of the key archetypes that show up there. So, you know, it differs. Every system of archetypes differs in the sense that it's just every, everything has its own flavor, just like mm -hmm. every form of like training everyone has their own flavor of their, you know, strength and conditioning or 
you know, whatever it might be. And this is the one that just most gelled with me. You know, the, the Tarot, for example, is an awesome system of archetypes. And the beauty of all of these systems is they're all universal. So all Tarot archetypes, you can find that within yourself. All the archetypes that Caroline Miss teaches, you can find that within yourself. All archetypes from, you know, like King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, for example, like the healthy masculine archetypes, everyone can find that within themselves. And that's the beauty of these systems is when you understand the nature of archetypes, you can see a little bit of yourself in everyone and everything. You know, when you see someone playing some something out like self-sabotage or prostituting themselves or playing the victim, you're like, well, if I'm honest with myself, I can find that version of me somewhere. You know, I can find that somewhere inside of myself, which also helps relationships be less personal when you realize that these are all like very powerful formative forces that are working through us. And we all just have our own unique expression of it. Like you, Mike Salemi, have a victim inside of you. Like I have a victim inside of me. Your victim might play itself a little bit differently than mine, but on a foundational level, we both share that common archetype. You know, so it it makes it easier to like do shadow work, for example, do inner work. It makes it easier to look at certain parts of yourself that maybe you've had a hard time looking at because you realize that everyone has those. Everyone has a victim. Everyone prostitutes themselves. Everyone sabotages themselves, you know, and you realize that it's not just me. It's universal. It's a universal pattern of survival. So it, it, it's a little bit more user friendly than a lot of other systems when you realize, hey, you know, we all got this shit. You know, it's just expressing itself in a different way. You said something the the word shadow and one of the things that honestly I was sharing this with Lauren that really impressed me when you guided me through my wheel was you know you had basically walked me through for maybe I don't know hour and a half plus or minus through like 70 archetypes and with within every single archetype you explained to me the the light characteristics of each one and the shadow and what I found really interesting is so many of the ones that I wanted to identify with or I was checking in with myself, I wanted to, of course, gravitate more towards the light side. And there was so much wisdom in what you shared in the shadow of, you know, or there, there could be a light side to the victim and there's a shadow side to the victim. So one question that I'm curious about for context, uh, when you're describing or expressing the shadow, what is that for you? And how might you define that for, for people? You know, I think most people see the shadow as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As like a negative thing. Like it's a bad part of you or it's a negative part of you. And I, I challenge that, um, that idea, you know, I love Richard Schwartz's work. I don't know if you've heard of internal family systems No. work. It's, it's a system of, um, doing what's called parts work where you work with all of these different parts of yourself and he has a great book called No Bad Parts. Mm. And essentially, what he lays out in his system is we have what's called exiles, which are like these younger wounded parts that experience pain or trauma. And then we have protector parts that are there to protect the exiles, 
right? To protect them from getting triggered, to protect them from getting activated, to like any sort of like reemergence of that pain, wound, or trauma. The protector is there to make sure that that doesn't happen. So a lot of what we call the shadow are really um, protector parts. They're patterns of self-preservation. They're really how we try to ensure our own survival. And it's similar to like when, you know, in the spiritual community, a lot of spiritual teachings are about like the ego is a bad thing. Right. You know, you should like dissolve the ego. You should get rid of the ego. And I challenge that as well. I'm like, well, the ego is there to protect younger wounded parts of you. The ego is almost like your inner child's survival team. Hmm. It's like, what, what did I have to do as a child to ensure safety, security, and survival? Was it I had to become a perfectionist? Was it I had to become a people pleaser? Was it I had to be all things to all people? Was it I had to develop an inner critic or a judge to protect myself from other people's judgments or criticisms? So you could see how everything that we're calling the shadow or the ego is really like your inner child's archetypal survival team that's just there trying to protect younger, wounded, more vulnerable parts. Now, those aspects of us, they serve us for a period of time. And what I share with a lot of people who do this work, I say, there's no such thing as a bad part of you. There's just a part of you that once brought you safety, security, and survival that is now holding you back from experiencing freedom and empowerment, right? So there's kind of like this trade-off of like, what once brought me safety and security now holds me back from feeling free and empowered in myself. For example, for me as a child, pleasing everybody made me feel safe. It made me feel connected. It almost like, gave me this sense of like a guarantee of like, so-and-so is going to be friends with me or so-and-so is going to take care of me. Like for the insecure part of me, being the people pleaser was very important for me at the time, right? It brought me safety and security and felt like it brought me a sense of survival. Now I could see how being a people pleaser is draining my energy, you know, taking away like my vitality, my sense of personal empowerment and my sense of freedom within myself. You know, it's, it's exhausting when you're trying to micromanage everyone's experience of you, you know, so you could see how the old contract of please everybody, because that's what feels safe eventually holds you back from feeling free and empowered in yourself. And I think that a lot of our pain and um, even illness in relationship to our health often shows up when that old contract is expiring, right? And the pain is like a messenger saying, hey, that old contract of being the people pleaser, that's not working anymore. It served you well for a period of time, but this pain in your life, whether it's emotional pain, physical pain, is just me letting you know that we need to rewrite that contract because it's really holding you back from reaching your potential. You know, so that's where I feel like the shadow work is really important, but not in the sense that we're demonizing any part of us. We see the value in it. 
I think the most important part of shadow work is to see the value in the shadow parts. The most important thing of thing of like really understanding the ego is seeing the value in it and like thanking it. That's, you know, in IFS and in internal family systems, there's certain questions that you ask your protector parts. Like, let's say like the saboteur is a protector part, which it is. You know, we sabotage as a way of protecting ourselves or ensuring safety and security. So one of the questions you ask is, you ask the saboteur, what are you afraid would happen if we didn't sabotage? And then you notice an answer that rises up. You know, you ask the saboteur, how old was I when you were assigned to your role of the saboteur? You know, and maybe an age comes up. You know, what happened to me around that time? You know, what is it that you're trying to protect me from? You know, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, thank you for doing that. You know, thank you for taking care of like this 12-year-old inside of me who felt abandoned and rejected. And thank you for sabotaging for all of those years, whether it was abandoning and rejecting ourselves, just to feel like that sense of like safety and security. Right. So then you can say, okay, well, what would you rather be doing than sabotaging all the time? You know, is there something that you would rather be doing? Is there anything you want me to know? Is there anything that you need to feel safe starting to let go of this role because it's holding us back from feeling free? You see how when you're exploring these shadow parts like the saboteur, the protectors, you're not casting it in any negative light. You're actually seeing the beauty and the purpose of it. And that's the prerequisite to being able to let go of it. Wow. And really being able to, to piggyback on what you said, really being able to self-parent, like everything that you shared, I'm like, wow, like that is a beautiful parallel to how we can self-parent and self-coach and notice ourselves with these patterns and learn to, to potentially even love ourselves, you know, much deeper with this, having this level of awareness. If you've been enjoying the past podcast, first off, I just want to say thank you. This has been such an enjoyable growth experience for myself. And to be able to bring on guests like we've had up to this point, it has been so freaking rad. And I hope you've been getting a lot out of the show. And to help keep the path growing and creating more content and bringing on more guests that are exactly supportive to what you want to learn and how you want to grow in life, I could really use your help with something. And in the show notes, I've created a very brief survey. If you could please fill it out, the information that you do will certainly be kept confidential. It can be anonymous. I just want to know what are you really struggling with in life? What would be most supportive to you? And also, not only will that help gear the future guests on the show, but also new content and potentially even new programs that I create. So check out the show notes for that link. It'll only take a few minutes. And once again, I greatly appreciate the help and support. You know, already you you shared words like the saboteur, the victim and such. With those four survival archetypes, what are the four? And I know you've touched on a little bit, but these are ones that uh, all, I mean, you had said something about like all of the archetypes, for example, we have them in our psyche at some level or potentially at different points in life. They show up maybe to teach us. Is that accurate? And what are those four survival that are with all of us at all times, I guess? Yeah. So the first is the child. 
that's the archetype that we're all born into. We're all born into the archetype as the child. And the child is the one that is helpless and powerless. Hmm. It's like totally dependent on other people for its own survival. Like you have a baby boy at home right now. <laughs> if you and Lauren were not there, your child does not survive very long. It's a 24-hour job. Yeah. So the child archetypally is the one that feels dependent on others for its own survival, whether it's you know, outsourcing self-responsibility, outsourcing the power of choice. There's a lot of outsourcing um, with the child archetype. It outsources its sense of self, so it tries to like get everyone's approval. Right. So that's the child archetype, you could say, as the shadow expression. The light expression is the child archetype is very playful. The child archetype is very innocent. The child archetype inside of us is the one that sees everything with fresh eyes, that has that beginner's mind, that has deep curiosity. You know, so that's the light expression of the child archetype. It's almost like childlike versus childish. You know, the childlike nature is what we want to really embody. The childish nature where we outsource responsibility is what we want to start to let go of as we move into adulthood, right? So that's the light and shadow of the child. The, the next is the victim archetype. Greg, on that real quick, you know, one of the things, and we don't need to go into super detail on this, but I'm really curious because when you took me through my wheel, you had expressed... Uh, a level of nuance with the child. And you had said, I don't recall exactly what child that you resonate with, but I remember mine was, I think it was the magical child. And so even within this archetype, there's levels of nuance there. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So there's many different variations of the child, kind of many different flavors. So the magical child, for example, the magical child sees the potential in everything, sees the beauty and the magic in everything you know, believes in every fairy tale, <laughs> you know, all possibilities. The shadow side of the magical child is maybe it gets caught in fantasies sometimes. Maybe it's not as rooted in reality. The magical child can sometimes, you know, try and bypass hard work. You know, it, maybe it thinks things just magically appear and you don't actually have to put the work in. Mm. You know, so the magical child sometimes needs to be rerouted in reality. But the beauty is you don't want to lose that wonder, that awe, that connection to magic and possibilities, seeing all potentials. So that's the magical child. The, the wounded child, for example, the wounded child is the one who feels like they experience some childhood wound, some pain, some trauma. The light side is that journey awakens a lot of compassion and a lot of desire to heal and to help others. The shadow side is sometimes we get caught in our wounds and we have a hard time moving past them. You know, maybe, maybe we still blame certain circumstances in our life on those childhood wounds and we haven't really moved past that point. So that's kind of the light and shadow of the, the wounded child. There's the orphan child, for example. The orphan child is the one that feels somewhat like abandoned. Mm -hmm. 
feels kind of like neglected. Like no one's here to help me. No one's here to take care of me. I have to do it myself. That's the shadow side. The light side is the orphan child learns a lot of independence. It learns how to really take care of itself and not be dependent on anyone else to get its own needs met. But obviously it has a hard time relying on others because it doesn't really trust others. You know, kind of protects that abandonment. Or it might try and look for surrogate families as well, which is common with the orphan child. Um, I have the invisible child, which is kind of that desire to feel seen and heard, but never really feeling seen and heard. So the shadow side for me is that feeling of invisibility of like, no one sees me, no one hears me, um, not feeling acknowledged and validated. But there's a part of me that actually feels safe in the invisibility, right? So I kind of went invisible as a child as a form of self-preservation because at some point feeling seen didn't feel safe, whether it was like the fear of being attacked or judged or ridiculed, et cetera. So going invisible was kind of like a safety precaution, but there's a part of you that still longs for that sense of feeling acknowledged, you know, so that's the invisible child. Um, There's a few others. There's the divine child that just feels like connected to everyone and everything, but sometimes has a hard time individuating and really like differentiating self from other. Then there's, you know, the, a few more, two more that I'll just share. There's, there's way more than that, but I'll just share kind of a few more just as example. Um, the eternal child, you know, shadow side would be like the Peter Pan syndrome, you know, never really growing up. The light side is like really staying like young and playful at heart. And then the adult child is actually a common one that I've seen where the child actually didn't have a childhood because it had to take on an adult role very quickly. So, you know, maybe, maybe you lost a parent and you actually had to step up in that like parenting or adult role from a young age. So you really disconnected from your childlike nature because you had to really take on, you know, more responsibilities than an average child is really used to. So that individual maybe has a hard time really connecting to their inner child or has a hard time giving themselves permission to play and just have fun and you know, not always be productive or not always like caretaking, things like that. Um, so those are some examples of the different variations of the child archetype. I hadn't heard that perspective on the adult child. And, you know, maybe it's because it's, it hits close to home, but like, especially within immigrant cultures, you know, when like, I just noticed, especially like within my faith or like the Italian immigrants or European immigrants or whatever, coming to a new land and really trying to make a life for themselves. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes the children had to step up to earn money for the family. And it's like every, all hands are on deck. And I've seen that a lot within just my own experience of, of people who either are immigrants themselves and, or the, the sons and daughters of immigrants. Yeah. Very, very common. I'm working with a client right now who's a child of immigrants and um, they had like a lot of, you know, financial issues, a lot of scarcity um, kind of growing up. And he always had to like take on that, 
you know, role of like going to the bank and making sure that the rent was paid and getting jobs early and like contributing. And like, he has that strong adult child and it's actually in his eighth house, which relates to other people's resources, which is interesting because the eighth house is really what other people have to offer you. So the child inside of him felt like, uh, other people don't really have anything to offer me. I have to do it myself. You know, mom and dad aren't able to take care of me. They don't have the resources, so I have to step up. So you could see even just that one example as like that archetype in the context of the wheel gives him an awareness of like where that pattern comes from, what the origin of it is. Um, so after the child archetype, now we have the victim. The victim is the part of us that pays attention to any situation in which we might be victimized. Right. So this archetype is born the first time you felt like a victim in any situation, which is usually in like the first seven to 10 years of your life. Like there's some situation in which you feel like a victim and all of a sudden that victim archetype is born. And going forward, that victim archetype is there to pay attention to any possible situation of being victimized ever again. So that's actually the light side of the victim is really paying attention to any situation where you might be victimized and sending setting strong enough boundaries where you're not being victimized. Really the victim um, starts to feel victimized when a boundary is crossed, right? Let's some say like someone is a victim of sexual abuse. That's a boundary being crossed, you know? So usually the, the victim is related to crossed boundaries. And also, you know, there's a difference between being a victim and playing the victim. Interesting. That's the light of the shadow, right? So being a victim, you want to acknowledge like, yeah, I'm being victimized here. I need to set a strong boundary or get out. You know, like we don't want to say, oh, being the victim, playing the victim, that's bad. That's wrong. Like, I'm not a victim. Like I've done people's wheels where they'll actually say like, I don't have a victim. And I'm like, that's probably the one you struggle with the most because it's the one you can't see, right? Usually the one you can't see is the one um, that you struggle with most. But let's say someone's like in an abusive relationship. They're being like physically or emotionally abused to say, oh, I'm not a victim. That would be ridiculous. You would want to say like, yes, I'm a victim and now I need to get out of here. You know, so that's the empowered victim is notice when you're being victimized and take action, you know, to get yourself out of the situation or by setting a strong boundary. The shadow side is where we play the victim to get our emotional needs met, right? We play that like kind of like defeated, disempowered, kind of like blame or self-pity role where we're kind of like, you know, not taking ownership, we're not setting boundaries, we're not empowering ourselves, and we're kind of looking for other people to rescue us. Remember, like the victim's always looking for a rescuer. So the victim paradoxically gains a sense of power by playing a powerless role, which is very interesting. So the victim gains a sense of power and control by playing a powerless role. For example, that kind of rhymes, which is kind of cool. Um, so like when I was a child, for example, my dad was a physician. So he was in kind of like sports medicine, orthopedics, things like that. 
And he and I, we had an okay relationship, but there was never a lot of like deep emotional connection. He was not like an emotional person. He was very like academic, very intellectual. So not a lot of like emotional connection, vulnerability, things like that. But I noticed as a child when, when I was either in pain or injured, my mom would take me to his office and I would get like the best treatment from him, his partners, his nurses. Like, so there was a part of me that said, okay, when I'm in pain or when I'm injured, I get more love and connection from dad. So there's a part of our inner victim that plays the victim to attract the rescuer as a way of getting our emotional needs met. Right. So you could say, which is why, like, as a coach or a therapist or someone that's working with people in pain, once you understand these archetypes, people might say, hey, I want to get out of pain. But if you actually look, there's a lot of what's called secondary gain in you know, the pain or the injury or the illness that they have, you know, a lot of people, for example, I have cousins that have Crohn's disease and they started a foundation to raise money for like research on Crohn's disease, which is a beautiful thing, like amazing work that they're doing. But there's also a shadow side. And the shadow side is when you start receiving recognition for your illness and you develop a sense of identity in it, there's a part of you that doesn't want to truly get rid of it, right? Because you were getting some sort of emotional need met through the illness or the pain. So that's where these archetypes, like if you really want to ask the question, why do some people heal and some people not heal? Right. A lot of the answers lies in these archetypes. Where these are the most common roadblocks as to why people don't heal which is why understanding them is so important for the healing process because you can see where you are actually getting certain needs met and holding on to some sort of, you know, pain or illness in that way. So obviously, like you were saying, the inner parenting is how we kind of like repattern how we get those needs met, you know, more internally, less outsourcing. Some part of us benefits from that, that oftentimes we either aren't aware of or don't want to look at. And then, I've, I mean, I've seen that a lot with people in pain over the years. I was teaching at a chiropractic clinic. I was teaching Eldos there and I did a few rounds of that for a few months. And it's just, and even as a competitive athlete myself, having been injured and, and training alongside athletes for, for many years, there's absolutely some part that benefits. And also who are we oftentimes without these injuries? Uh, I have fr- yes. friends growing up uh, whose parents were were addicted to pharmaceuticals or had specific ailments. And, and you're exactly right. Like in so many ways, like they got more attention. They got more love. People who wouldn't normally maybe call to check up on them would call and see how they're doing. And they're absolutely, in my experience, to second what you said, is like there is some part of us that benefits from that. Yeah. And there's no reason to hold any guilt or shame around that, you know, that's why these archetypes are so important is everyone, like we've said, we've said many times, everyone has their flavor of it. Mm. You know, like I could see how I've gotten a lot of needs met through certain illnesses or injuries, you know, whether it's the empathy, the compassion, the feeling held and taken care of, or, you know, getting out of, you know, not yet feeling fully empowered to set boundaries. So maybe I might use an illness or an injury as a, and as, 
as an excuse to say no to something that otherwise I wouldn't feel confident or empowered enough to say no to. You know, you look at like the COVID pandemic, how many people like used COVID as an excuse to say no to like social gatherings that maybe in the past they did out of obligation, but they didn't really want to go to. (laughs) So they're like, no, sorry, I can't go, you know, like COVID. And it's like, you could just say no and not have to give a reason for it. But a lot of us don't yet feel fully empowered in ourselves to do that. So we might have to use some sort of illness or injury or some sort of pain as an excuse or as a reason to set that boundary or to say no to something, you know, et cetera. So it's very interesting how all of these patterns just kind of like wiggle their way into our life. And you can see it collectively. You know, it's very clear when you understand these archetypes to see all the collective patterns and then, you know, hopefully see that version in yourself. Um, So then we move to the saboteur. So the saboteur is the most obvious one. It's self-sabotage. But the reason we self-sabotage is, you know, like Caroline Miss says, the saboteur is there to protect you from your own empowerment, Uh which is a very powerful statement. You know, the saboteur is there to protect you from your own empowerment. So a lot of times we're actually afraid of our own power. We're afraid of our own potential. And we actually feel safer with the lesser empowered versions of us, whether it's like the people pleaser, you know, um, trying to be like all things to all people, you know, like saying yes to someone um, rather than saying no, when you like, you want to say no, but you say yes, because you're afraid of disappointing them. You know, that like disempowered version of us, that's, you know, afraid of upsetting, triggering, disappointing, um, That's where the saboteur comes in as a way of ensuring safety and security, but sabotaging freedom and empowerment. So, you know, my girlfriend and I were talking last night because we're teaching a workshop tonight. We're talking about the saboteur and the four survival archetypes of like the child archetype projects everyone as their parent. The victim archetype projects everyone as their rescuer. Mm. Then we're like, what does the saboteur archetype project other people as? And what came to mind for me is the saboteur almost projects other people as like their master. And you're almost like the slave. Mm. Like you're like the slave that's actually like enslaved to others because you're kind of like, if we take that people pleasing example, you're kind of like enslaved to their experience of you, which is what you're trying to micromanage. You don't actually feel free to say yes to what you want to say yes to, say no to what you want to say no to. You don't yet feel empowered in that. So you actually enslave yourself as a way of feeling safe. You know, you know if I say yes to this person, even though I want to say no, I feel safe because they experience me in a positive way or they're pleased with me. So I'm not triggering them. I'm not disappointing them. I'm not upsetting them. And that feels safer for me. You know, so the saboteur protects us from our own empowerment because when we fully step into our power, a lot of times shit hits the fan. You know, like we start triggering people around us. We start upsetting people around us. You know, when we actually start speaking our mind, when we actually start speaking our truth, you know, 
that sometimes can feel unsafe for certain parts of us. And the truth is that this is kind of like a brutal truth, which is there's very few people that actually want to be in relationship with the most empowered version of you. Mm. Most people are getting their needs met with the lesser empowered version of you. Like most people are getting their needs met by your people pleaser, for example, you know, or your caretaker, you know, or the part of you that wants to say yes to them all the time. They're getting their needs met by that. So as soon as you start stepping into your power, you turn your whole life upside down, you know, and you start to see kind of like what's, what's a mismatch in your life. You realize like, oh shit, like that job I've been working, that's a mismatch for, for me now. You know, that place I've been living, that's not really a vibrational match anymore. Or that relationship I've been in, that's not really working anymore. Which is why when a lot of people step into their power, you see, you know, career changes, you see um, people move to different states or different countries. You see a lot of like divorces or relationship changes because everything that you were in relationship with before was in relationship with that less empowered version of you. So it's kind of like the saboteur protects you from the inconvenience of your whole life changing. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's really the, the core of self-sabotage is it protects you from your power because once you step into your power, everything changes. And until you're ready for that, it's going to be self-sabotage as a way of keeping you safe and secure. That is so powerful. And what also comes up hearing you say that is with regards to addictions and distractions, you know, like a bunch of, you know, unfortunately friends who were, who were athletes got injured and then were addicted to opiates and painkillers or the addictions to porn or the addictions to food. That was the biggest thing, as you were saying, I absolutely resonate with the relationship with people. And like, I've seen that so much uh, in relationship to material items or these things where we are um, maybe playing small uh, in regards or also afraid of that, that power that lies within ourselves. And I'm sure that comes up in a lot of the men's work. Absolutely. Or just your relationship with your own power. By now in today's podcast, I hope you've been learning a lot alongside me. Man, when I do these shows, especially today's show, it's so cool because there's a lot that arises in me. And sometimes it's quite challenging because in, for example, today's discussion, Greg is breaking down at a very deep level, both the light side, which many people can associate with the archetypes maybe that he's already discussed, but also the shadow side, those blind spots, those things that we cannot see. And so anytime that I get to have an experience with someone like Greg or what we do at our men's retreats, it is such a treat for myself. And I know for the other men, because we are oftentimes so blind to what we cannot see. And that is why I believe wholeheartedly that men need other men and we need special containers where we can do this work so that not only can we come to these realizations, but also we can be held and we can be witnessed and we can witness others in their own process. Just that is so 
healing and so, for lack of a better term, magical. And it is such a beautiful thing that we do at the Men of Movement Retreat. If you're a man interested in discovering at a deeper level your blind spots, receiving feedback, holding others, and being held in the process, then we've got something dope coming up June 8th through the 11th out in Mount Shasta, California. It will be the fourth Men of Movement Retreat. It's led by myself, along with four other rad practitioners who I've learned from over the years, who share their knowledge, who share their wisdom. And the container that is created is truly something special. If you would like to sign up and hop on a call with me, all you got to do is click the link in the show notes or go to mikesalemi.io. You will go in the upper right corner, hit the Men of Movement tab, get on my schedule, and let's have a conversation. And I hope to see you there. Now let's get back to the show. There's also where we might sabotage others or where we might victimize others. So it's it's not just where we self-sabotage or where we feel victimized by others. It kind of goes the other way. For example, a lot of parents, and this is where shadow work is really helpful in understanding these archetypes. A lot of parents will say, you know, I only want what's best for my children. And Caroline Miss will just call bullshit on you all the time. Interesting. And I'll give you an example of how that might show up. And this is for individuals that don't do this kind of inner work. You know, you and Lauren as like parents, you're doing this work within yourself so you can find that part of you and make sure that it's not showing up sabotaging your child. But I've had clients, for example, where let's say they grew up in like a very strict like Catholic home. So there's like a strong like Christian upbringing. And let's say I start working with their son and I start teaching them Tai Chi, meditation, different like shamanic practices, maybe like how to use the tarot, things like that. And a lot of what I'm teaching their child goes against their religious beliefs. I've had parents say to their children who are actually like starting to get better and their health was improving and things like that, say, if you continue to do those things, you're out of the house. I was like, wow, like a parent that thinks they only want what's best for their child is actually willing to sabotage their own child's health just to protect some belief system that they have within themselves. You know, I've even explored this you know, with like my own father, for example, like he and I have a great relationship. We're super close now, but I'm sure he doesn't mind me calling him out on something. So during COVID, there was obviously, you know, the vaccines being rolled out, things like that. And some people like rushing to get vaccinated, other people like maybe being a little bit more hesitant, you know, I'm not sure I want to do my due diligence, things like that. You know, I decided to not get vaccinated. I felt like that was what was best for my body, but I don't, I've never told anyone to do it or not to do it. That's not my business. I'm not, it's not my place to really tell someone I can only make that call for myself. But I noticed my dad, like almost like trying to convince me to get vaccinated Mm. and like, you know, why aren't you doing it? You know, like you should just kind of like, I noticed him trying to convince me to get vaccinated. I was just like questioning. I was like, okay, I know my dad's like a Western medicine doctor. So his belief systems are very strongly in like that 
kind of like traditional conventional model. So I was thinking just within myself, like, is my dad saying that because he truly believes that's what's best for his child and his child's body? Because also I've had COVID twice. So I have like a good amount of like immunity, like natural immunity, things like that. And my dad knows like science, like he's not, he's a smart (laughs) guy. He's a smart guy, yeah. Yeah. So I was like, okay, like, is he saying that because he truly feels that's what's best for my health and my body, or that's what's best for confirming his belief system? So you could see that, like, although you might be a parent that truly loves your child, there might still be subtle ways in which you're actually willing to sabotage your child just to validate one of your belief systems. And, you know, I'm sure I could find that in myself somewhere. You know, I'm sure I could find some way in which I've sabotaged someone else in relationship. You know, if I'm honest with myself, I can find it, which is why I'm okay calling, you know, someone else out on it because I'm not pointing fingers. I can find that in myself too. So an example of how it's not just how you sabotage yourself, but how you potentially sabotage another. Um, so then the last is the prostitute. So the prostitute is where we compromise ourselves, where we um, negotiate ourselves, our values, our integrity, um, our self-worth, things like that. And the prostitute is always looking for a guarantee. That's really like the kind of the core of the prostitute is the prostitute's willing to compromise itself to ensure some guarantee, whether it's like working a job that you're not aligned with or passionate about, but the steady paycheck gives you a guarantee of security. Or I remember when I was 12 years old and my parents would give me like $10 or 15 bucks to go to the movies and go for ice cream with friends. And It was a Saturday night. Maybe I was 12, 13, whatever. It wasn't my money. It was money that my parents were giving me. Very kind of them. And I would go to the movies and I would buy my friends movie tickets or I would buy their ice cream or I would buy their snacks. And at the time, I didn't really know what I was doing. I thought I was like being like a nice friend. But looking back as I've explored this archetypal work, I was buying their loyalty. Wow. Right, I was buying more of a guarantee that 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 they would stay friends with me because of what I was doing. So you could see how the prostitute is all about where you compromise and negotiate your integrity as a way of trying to ensure some sort of guarantee, and it's usually coming from a place of low self-esteem. That's so. That's fascinating. The empowered prostitute is the one that is willing to negotiate, but willing to negotiate from a place of empowerment, not low self-esteem. You know, like for example, my, my partner, she's a physician. She does a lot of like holistic and integrative medicine. And as she was, I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this, as she was going through um, some of like her like divorce mediation from her previous marriage, Someone in my family was helping her, who's like a divorce attorney, like very, very successful and powerful attorney, like really helping her and giving her a lot of time with um, 
some of her negotiations, like just kind of giving her a lot of free time. And I was saying to her, like, I was saying to my partner, like, I know she's giving you a lot of free time, but don't think like this is, you know, a free lunch, for example, mm. you know, and, and she said, this is my partner who's done a lot of this archetype work. She's like, Greg, I know, I know either she's going to ask to be a patient or she's going to ask me to see her kids. Um, cause she has like a, a three year wait list. So, and she's like, you know what? I'm willing to do that. That seems like a fair transaction. You know, so that's like the empowered prostitute. And she said to me, she's like, Greg, I have my prostitute in my highest potential. I know what I'm doing. Wow. You know? Okay. And, and that's, yeah, that's someone who knows their value and is willing to negotiate, but it's coming from a place of empowerment. It's coming from a place of like self-esteem of like, I know what I have to offer you. And so what you're giving me and that exchange feels fair. It feels like a, like a balanced transaction. So I'm willing to kind of negotiate there. You know, that's really the empowered version of the prostitute. Okay. Okay. Wonderful, man. And I know that we, uh, man, there's, there's so much that we can go into. Uh, I know that we, uh, when you and I had spoken to, to briefly transition, we had discussed, we were going to touch on four additional archetypes and these four would be the king, the queen, the mother, and the father. Now I selfishly chose those, but also with the work that I'm doing that I'm seeing out there, I, I really saw the, the, the value in this for, for the listeners. And I was hoping that you could discuss a little bit briefly about each one and bringing it back to the question of how can these archetypes, and you've done a beautiful job up to this point for sure, how can the knowledge and the awareness of these archetypes that we've already gone over and then we'll go over in a moment, lead us to a more empowering, fulfilling, and um, self-realized life? So the mother and the father archetype are two of the most important archetypes to explore. And the reason is because of what you shared earlier about inner parenting, mm. right? So the, the mother archetype is introduced to every individual through their relationship with their mom. The father archetype is introduced to every individual through their relationship with their dad. And if it's not biological, it might be just your dominant male caretaker or your dominant female caretaker. So the mother archetype really sets the stage with sets the stage for your relationship with women, your relationship with the feminine, and also how you learn how to care for or mother yourself. Right? So the way you felt mothered by your mom or your female caretaker very much sets the stage for how you receive yourself, how you nurture yourself, and how you tend to yourself. So how you relate to your inner life, right? So the father archetype is your relationship with the masculine, your relationship with men. And it also sets the stage for how you're going to feel received by the world. Right. So mother archetype is kind of like how you learn to receive yourself. Father archetype is how you feel received by the world. And also until we learn how to 
parent ourselves and parent our inner child, we very often project the mother archetype onto women and the father archetype onto men. And I've seen this like very clearly in my own life. Like I shared with you, I used to have certain challenges and certain wounds with my own father. And when I first started my practice as a Czech practitioner, 80% of my clients were women. And the reason for that is I felt much safer and more connected to my mom than my father when I was younger. So I felt more connected to working with females than I did males. Then I started doing a lot of healing work within myself, with my relationship with my dad, and he and I are very close. And I actually started to have more challenges with my mom. And then my practice flip-flopped, where 80% of my clients were men and 20% of my clients were women. The reason that started that way was because anytime a man would come into my office or in my studio, I would project the father archetype onto them. It would create a fear response or a pain response inside of me, and I would close myself down. Right? So that's where I attracted mostly women. And now as I've opened myself up to my father, but more importantly, opened myself up to the parts of me that were in relationship with my father, now I can open myself up to other men. You know, so the mother and father archetype are really formative forces in terms of how you really parent yourself and how you feel received by the world outside of you. Um, so that's that's a really powerful thing to explore is those two archetypes within yourself. With that one specifically, the father, uh, one thing that I've been more aware of and am and, and learning so much right now, obviously just being a, a dad and a father now for four weeks, I think at this point, I think Luca just turned uh, a month, just a few days ago. And there's a difference. Now, this, this is a difference for me, but there's a difference between dad and father. And, you know, the, like if for me, the energy behind father is that archetype, is that model, is that, that teacher, that guide, the governor, whatever, as these developmental years for, for Luca as he grows. And dad for me is more of like the biological. And it's like, for me, I really want to continue and, and do my work on myself and also to be the healthier versions of that father for him and not just be stuck as just dad. Like I'm loving, at least at this phase in life, and I hope in, in all phases, but being a very present person with him. And I feel like through that presence, through the skin to skin time that we're getting to spend, through the freaking hours of eye gazing, like I get to communicate non-verbally the, 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 the healthy versions of how I experience and want to continue experiencing that father archetype with him. Yeah. And that's beautiful. Um, so you're, you're seeing all of that very clearly, just those forces emerging and how that kind of like translates and gets transmitted. Um, so the most important thing I think to look at for people is, you know, what were the challenging ways in which mom and dad parented you? And how are you now parenting yourself in the same way? Right. So for example, I shared that my relationship with my dad, there wasn't a lot of emotional connection, a lot of emotional disconnection. 
So one thing I did as a child from a young age is I started to disconnect from my own emotions because connecting to my own emotions, but not having a parent that could meet me there felt unsafe and vulnerable. So I started to disconnect from my emotions the way I felt my dad doing the same with me. Right. So you realize that a lot of our kind of like self-generated pain is actually how we parent ourselves in the same challenging or painful ways that our parents, one or both of them, parented us. And then we say, okay, well, how old was the child in me that was in relationship with that parent? Maybe it's eight, maybe it's 12. And you say, okay, well, what did that child need from mom or dad but never receive? And you just kind of like notice and explore what rises up in you, in you and say, okay, that's my job to offer that to myself now. And that's how you start to reparent yourself and heal that mother and father archetype. And you realize how much until we do that, we actually outsource that responsibility, you know, and that's one of the main causes of addiction, for example, you know, let's take alcoholism, for example. You know, a bottle of alcohol, if you think of the bottle metaphorically, a bottle is a container, right? Mom and dad are meant to be a container for a child's experience. If mom and dad can't be a safe container for their child's experience, that child doesn't know how to create a container for themselves. So they'll look for someone or something else to create a container for the parts of them that they don't feel safe being in relationship with. So the bottle actually represents the safe container for the parts of us that never felt safe for us to connect to. So the bottle actually represents mom or dad in the form of an addiction, right? So you can see how these archetypes show up in all of these different ways. but the mother and father are very, very powerful. The, the king and the queen. So the king and the queen are an expression of the, the royal family. So the king and the queen both take leadership roles, right? They're, they're the, the dominant figures in a kingdom. They're the ones that are being of service, that are Um, taking the lead, that are taking commands, that are living by example. They're the ones that are really stepping into their power. But hopefully they're doing it in a way that is best for themselves and everyone involved. The shadow side of the king and the queen, you know, in King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, they have, you know, the child archetype is what becomes the king. Right. So the the immature child, they have what's called, I think it's the high chair tyrant or the weakling prince. Right. So there's a kind of like the two um, shadow expressions of the child, which then become either the weakling king or the tyrant king. You know, those are kind of like the two polarities of like the immature child becoming the immature king. It's one polarity of the tyrant the other polarity of the weakling. The tyrant is maybe where you're too controlling, maybe, you know, narcissistic, 
always doing what's best for you, but maybe not what's best for everyone involved, not what's best for your kingdom at large. Mm. Or the weakling king is the one that has a hard time stepping into their power, has a hard time stepping into that leadership role, is still always looking to outsource responsibility. You know, so there's the, the dynamic of the king and the queen. Also, this is common with the queen, but also the king, where the shadow side of those archetypes, if you think about the royal family, is entitlement. Okay. Right. A lot of times the queen and also the king can feel entitled to certain things, you know, entitled to the throne, entitled to the money, entitled to the power, but they don't actually feel comfortable stepping into that role fully. So there's kind of like that part of them that's kind of like almost like the Lion King of like, I just can't wait to be king. (laughs) But like, he's still kind of like the child that's like the prince not really ready to be king kind of got that potential for power, but is actually afraid to step into it because of all the responsibilities that come with it. So the king and the queen in the empowered version of themselves have this sense of worthiness. But if they're not careful, worthiness turns into entitlement. Right. So that's where um, the king and the queen is really, you know, the leadership role that we take in what we're creating for ourselves and everyone around us. You know, with all these archetypes, there's so many movies that come to mind, especially with these things like the king, the queen, and and with the king and the queen specifically, like there is that you had shared, they're part of the royal family. And so there's a bloodline component to it. And so with that bloodline, that the words that you said, entitlement, that immature part of it, it's like, I'm... Uh, I'm deserving because uh, because I am a part of this family bloodline or whatever. So I've definitely seen that. And I, and I think too, just now having a, more of an awareness of these archetypes, it's made so like, I don't want to say it's made movies less fun not to say that, but it's like, it's brought me so much more awareness into, uh, as opposed to getting so lost in the movies. I mean, I absolutely still do and I'll disconnect and just lose myself in the movie, but then also to step back and be like, oh shit, like that is that weakling prince that is has that sense of entitlement. And then he has to go through his own hero's journey and then through the hero's journey. And then he develops into the noble king. That's very, very, very powerful, man. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, my pleasure. So the, you know, the, the movies are all archetypal. Mm-hmm. You know, once you understand this and anytime you watch a movie, read a book, you realize that every storyline is really archetypes. Mm-hmm. And it helps you be able to see yourself in everything and everyone and in every story. Like when I was going through Caroline Mrs. Training, like the instructors, they were always referencing movies. Huh. Like they were always <laughs> referencing like this character in this movie. And I was just like, I haven't seen any of these. Um, <laughs> but, but it's really fascinating when you really look at entertainment through that lens. Interesting. And Greg, you know, I know we're, we're getting kind of close to the end of the time here and you've referenced a few times and I've done some very super dope work with you in this, the wheel that you've referenced and the different houses and such. And so maybe at just a high level view, could you share what that is? And just in general, what you took me through, because it has been something that I uh, just, I was sharing, I think before we hopped on about how I had placed my wheel uh, in a different room and we've been reorganizing the house when, when, when Luca came and stuff. And so as I was preparing for tonight's or for today's interview, 
uh, I got out my wheel and I was like, oh shit, like that's where my prostitute is. That, that's where my hermit is and my highest power. And so it's been a really cool thing to rediscover, especially after these months since we've gone through it. So at a high level bird's eye perspective, what is the wheel that you take clients through? Yeah, so the wheel is um, the, it's based on the 12 houses of astrology. So it's not really, it has nothing to do with astrology other than using the 12 houses as a framework. So the 12 houses each represent a different key area of your life, right? For example, like first house is your ego and and your personality. Second house relates to your values and finances. Third house is communication and self-expression. Fourth house is home and family life. And, you know, it goes around the wheel, each representing a different key area of your life. So what I take clients through is, like I, I took you through, is we determine your 12 core archetypes. You have your four survival archetypes, and then you have eight individual ones, which vary person to person based on, you know, what you love to do, what you love doing growing up as a child, what your interests are, how you spend your time and your energy, kind of like the roles that you play um, in relationship and in life. So we determine your 12 archetypes. And then I take you through an intuitive process of casting the archetypes into the wheel. So you'll have 12 archetypes, 12 houses, you'll have one archetype in each house. And once you have one archetype in each house, then you can explore and say, okay, why is this archetype showing up in this key area of my life? Mm. For example, tomorrow we're moving into March, which March is the third house. The 12 houses are also related to the 12 months. So every year you're going one lap around the wheel. So March is the third house, which is communication and self-expression. I have the addict archetype in the third house. So for me, if I ask myself, okay, in communication and the way I I express myself, what is my addiction? Well, my addiction is to other people's approval. My addiction might be the need to be right all the time. My addiction might be external validation. And I say, okay, if if every archetype represents your relationship with your own power, Where am I giving my power away in that search for those addictions when I'm communicating? So, you know, my, my partner, she, um, she's very like Christ-based. So she goes through like this time of Lent, which I'm not Christian, but I was just like, you know, this is really cool thing. I'm going to try this. Like I'm going to, um, give up something for like 40 days. Um, just cause that whole kind of just like fasting mentality of giving up something that you're not. Um, that maybe you're like over attached to, it's one of your hiding spots, something you're addicted to. That's something that I feel like is a deep spiritual practice and has nothing to do with religion. It's just something that I think we can all do. So it's like, well, most of Lent is in March, which is communication. I have the addict. I'm going to give up all pursuit of external validation and other people's approval. And I'm also going to give up quoting or referencing other people. Because that's something I notice I do a lot, whether it's like quoting, this is what Paul Check said, or like, you know, whatever. So my addict is very much attached to those things, you know, getting the approval, getting the validation, using what other people said as a way of, you know, you know, my own vehicle for self-expression. So 
I was like, you know what? I'm going to give up all those things. I'm going to like really work with my addict in the third house and how I communicate. And that's going to be my Lent. That's going to be like my fasting. So even now I've like up until it's only been a few days of Lent, like caught myself like, oh, that's where I would like say something as a way of trying to get that little hit of approval, which is what I was addicted to. So just like a very snippet example of like how these archetypes in these houses can really show up very clearly and can really support you um, just as a framework for your own growth and your own inner exploration. So 12 archetypes, 12 houses, we determine the 12 archetypes, we cast it into the house, one archetype in each house, and you see really the contract that you have in that area of your life. There's a disempowered version, the shadow expression, an empowered version, the light expression, and that's what we start to uncover. So it's a really powerful framework to be able to do a lot of that inner work. And how long approximately, I don't want to say like, how long does one wheel last, but like when, how often do you maybe recast your own wheel or like you feel like you've extracted and live live the lessons of of that that wheel, and then now it's time to maybe recast a second, if if at any point. Yeah, so there's actually a few different wheels that you cast over a period of time. Okay. Um. So the first wheel that we cast is called your natal wheel. It's kind of like your birth chart. Mm. Like this is the one that you were kind of like born with, and you've been kind of working with for however many years you've been on this planet, and there's other wheels that we can cast. You know, there's a wheel called a transformation wheel, which is if there's something specific you want to transform in your life, you can choose the archetypes consciously that might support you in transforming whatever that thing is. It'll support you in that process. So you can add a second wheel on top of it. Then there's what's called your cosmic wheel, which you cast it purely intuitive. You don't actually pick the archetypes. They kind of pick you. So the truth is that we actually have three wheels that work together. There's the natal wheel, there's the transformation wheel, and then there's the cosmic wheel. So at the end of the day, you have actually three archetypes in each house working together. But I didn't go past my first wheel for three and a half years Mm. because every year, Like my partner would ask me like, Greg, do you want to recast your will? I'm like, I have so much work to do on this first one. Like there's no way I'm ready for anything more. I feel that. And just this year, (laughs) I was actually ready to do my second and my third wheel. So I can actually work with 36 archetypes, three in each house rather than just one in each house. But the first wheel you can work with for at least a couple of years um, until you feel ready to kind of like take a deeper dive um, and work with some new archetypes. And that's also really important is your relationship with archetypes, you kind of ebb and flow in and out of them. And it's important to realize that some of the archetypes that you had maybe in the past, you might not, they might not be as present for you, like in the present or the future. Like I had the, I had a strong athlete archetype when I was younger. Now I love exercising. I love working out. I love lifting weights, but I don't really feel like I have that like strong athlete archetype like I used to. So I have other archetypes that are more present for me. So there's, you know, a lot of the archetypal contracts, 
they expire after a period of time and you kind of move into new ones. And actually what you were saying about like athletes struggling with like addiction and painkillers and things like that, especially after like retirement, for example, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what Paul calls um, an archetypal possession where you actually get possessed by an archetype and you almost like don't know who you are outside of it. So you get like so attached to that athlete archetype that once you retire, you actually don't feel a connection to all of the other archetypes. You're so trapped in that one that you actually create, you know, addictions, things like that. It's also very common for like mothers, for example, once their kids are like adults and they kind of have the empty nest, there's a part of them that almost like doesn't know what to do with themselves. So they either like try and keep mothering their adult children or they find other things to mother, you know, other people to mother. So there's kind of like that mother archetype that can kind of like trap an individual in that parenting relationship because they almost like don't know who they are without it. You know, so that's where we, we do want to be in relationship with these archetypes but not get overly attached or stuck in any, any one of them. Brother, I learned so much from you today. <laughs> Thank you so much, man, for sharing everything that you did. And I know with whether it's people wanting to seek you out to actually get their wheel cast or to do some of the other work that you do, I'd love for you to share, obviously, where can people find you? And also anyone listening is going to get a special discount on your program as well. So where can people find you, brother? And also, uh, what is this program that you've created and where you really you've put so much heart into? Actually, without going too much on a tangent, I remember when you had, we had spoken when you were just starting to create it. And I remember on those conversations, just how much love and, and intentionality you were putting into it. So yeah, what is that program and, and what are you up to? Yeah, so the best place for people to reach me directly is my website. Mm-hmm which is healing4d.com. So that's healing and the number for d.com. And then the the program Healing the Mind, A Journey to Wholeness is a 21-day program that I created, which is really just an expression of my own healing journey and a result of just the last 10 years of coaching people through a lot of these challenges. And it's a real holistic and integrative approach to mental health the survival archetypes and some of that work is included, but it goes, you know, much deeper. So it's a three-week guided program. So there's three one-week modules. And the first week is week one is called foundations, which is really just all like the foundational principles of, you know, nutrition, sleep, movement, breath, just all the things that no matter what we're healing from, we have to address these core, you know, these core issues. There's no kind of like you know, putting the cart before the horse, you know, so I always get the foundation first. Then the second week, we go into a little bit more of the inner work, the shadow work, you know, the inner child, the inner parenting, the archetypes, you know, healing some of our core addictions, a lot of, you know, different meditation practices, things like that. And then week three is actually my favorite where we start to integrate a lot of like the laws of nature, like working with the elements, working with the seasons, working with the polarities and like really almost like harmonizing our energetics with a lot of these natural laws, almost from like a shamanic perspective or almost like a alchemical perspective. It's kind of like alchemy in terms of really knowing how to work with the seasons and the elements and the polarities and all of that. So that's 
the the third week. So it's 21 days in total, three one-week modules. And that program, they can go to healing4d.com forward slash HTM. And the discount code for your listeners that I have set up for them is Mike20. Cool. So Mike20, they'll save 20% off. So that's um, healing4d.com, my website. Then forward slash HTM is the program. And then the last thing that I have is my partner and I just launched an online community um, called Synergy Medicine, which is a membership-based community where we do like weekly group coaching calls and live streams and you know recorded like video content and a lot of like chat rooms and things like that. So just really bringing kind of like a group community kind of like setting for the healing process. So that's synergymedicine.us. So those are the best places to find me. Beautiful, man. And thank you so much for offering the listeners that discount. That is super gracious of you. And, and once again, thank you so much for your time, Greg. Really appreciate you, brother. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path. And I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours. 